Welcome to Pastor's Class. As we conclude this study through The Respectable Sins, it's a book by Jerry Bridges, and hopefully you've enjoyed this study looking at these different sins. We, we, I know it's sometimes hard to look at our sin, but uh, throughout the study, it's really a, a helpful piece to be victorious over certain areas of your life. You may not have even realized that you were walking in sin and struggling. And so I pray this has been encouraging to you in your walk with the Lord. And today we'll end looking at the sin of worldliness, the sin of worldliness. And we'll talk a little bit more, uh, at least expand the definition, but you kind of get the idea. It's being of the world. And one of the reasons that this sin is so respectable is that the world, people that live day to day uh, that are not Christians, all they really have is the world. They don't think about another life or another scale of um, you know, morality or values. They're based off of what's here in front of them. This is what they live their life for. And so it becomes normative that you would live for the world. And so what's so dangerous about this is that the world doesn't really see worldliness as a sin. It's just the air they breathe. And so whereas they might look at somebody who's prideful and go, well, clearly they're prideful. Uh, they might look at somebody who's unthankful. Well, that person's not grateful for anything. So they can identify even some of these other respectable sins. This one is like a fish in water. They don't know that the worldliness they live in is actually just life. And so as you live in the culture, as we as Christians try to live in this world, it's easy to just get used to worldliness. It's part of the air that we breathe. And so we as Christians have to take a step back, look at how we're living. And uh, for this one, we're going to look at how we approach the world. So let me walk through a couple of things here. Uh, I'll, I'll have a few different points for you today. The first kind of set of points or things to define, the first couple are, are how we should define what worldliness actually is. I'll, I'll draw this from Bridges. He talks about it. And uh, the first one is the, a love of this life. We love this life. Uh, it's, a, it's an affection for the here and now and the things of this world. First John chapter 2 rightly defines this in verse 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here is this love of the world and it's up against the fact that you either love the Father or love the world. You can't love them both. But there's an interesting uh, usage of the word desires. Maybe you see it there in the text. He uses it a couple of different times. He says the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Um, and then he talks about the pride of life, which is really an attitude towards life. So the idea of worldliness is not so much an action as it is a heart uh, motive or desire. So to, to be worldly comes from the inside, that we're worldly in our hearts. We have desires for the things of this world. Now there's another verse in 1 Corinthians 7 that helps kind of paint the picture here as well. 
And it's almost the positive version that you can then reverse. Notice what it says. And those who deal with the world as, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So they know that these godly people know that this world is passing away. So the way they handle this world is that, eh, it's not that big of a deal. They, they minimize it. So they don't have this strong desire for the world. They just, as if they had no dealings with it. And so the person that is worldly is one that obsesses over these things. They're attached to it. Uh, this is how uh, Bridges defines it. He says, worldliness is being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life. It, it's getting connected to the things that are here and now. And so this is distinctly different than the Christian mindset. Uh, the one looking at eternity and the Father, and whereas this is not our home, and this is a temporary place for us. Uh, but for, for us as Christians, we can't get wrapped up in the stuff of now. And then he, Bridges goes a little further than simply the material goods of now, the temporal piece. He talks about how we get wrapped up in society, the love of society. Here's, here's what I mean. This is the danger of loving the values of the world. Here's how he defines it. Accepting the values, the mores, and the practices of the nice but unbelieving society around us without discerning whether or not those values, mores, and practices are biblical. So it, it's, it's not just uh, fitting in as long as that what we're, you know, I'm just going to try to do what the world does and not do anything that's real bad. We as Christians don't value things here like others do. We, we take on the world and see it differently than other people do. And so we should approach material goods and the value of this world differently than everyone else. And so we want to look at a few areas in which we ought to see how worldly we are. Because there's a lot of different ways you can go here. And Bridges will even point out of the three areas, uh, money, uh, immorality, and idolatry, those feel like dis, uh, not respected sins. I mean, they're, they're not respectable. They are ones that are disrespected. People, people don't want to be idolatrous or immoral. But there are some respectable versions of it, some subtle versions of these sins that we would accept. So let's look at money first. Let's look at the ways in which we approach money or material goods. And one of the ways that, that uh, Bridges, he, he runs some stats. I won't go through them all, but it's a simple equation that we as Americans are more in debt than we've ever been in debt before. We uh, are making more money than we've ever made before. We're giving less of a percentage of what we have, what we have. And, while Christians do give more, he'll say that Christians are giving less of a percentage of their income, and we're saving less of that money than we did before. So if we're making more, we're more in debt, we're borrowing more, we're giving less of it away, and we're saving less of it, then there has to be a place this money's going, and his point is it's going towards temporal now things. We're spending more and more money 
on ourselves, cars, entertainment, whatever it might be, we are spending money on the here and now. Now here's where these, these topics get difficult. Uh, first of all, I'm sure that you are, you know, I'm thankful you're still watching at this point because I've talked about money. Most people at this point says, I don't want to hear a preacher talk about money. I'm turning this thing off. So first of all, if you made it at this point, I'm thankful for this. And money's a hard one to talk about because the temptation is to start just giving these like hard and fast rules. Um, classically, the you say 10% tithe, you give 10% of your income to the church, and then you, you just walk away, 90% of it's yours. Uh, that's, not, that's not a real good way to think about all that you have. You should think about everything is given to me by God. Uh, and so we should be generous people uh, beyond a 10% level. Uh, we shouldn't just say, well, just because the Old Testament, uh, you see this law of tithing, and I'm just going to meet whatever standard was there. The, the goal ought to be is that we're generous people as Christians. So then how is it that you, um, how is it that you should approach money in uh, not a worldly manner? Uh, and so I, just to approach it a little bit further, I want you to start thinking about money, not so much in amounts, spiritually, how are you handling your money? Is it a matter of prayer? What you do with your budget? Are you actually thinking through, how can I use my money for godly purposes? Because if you're not, money has a, has a terrible way of impacting your heart. Let me read you a verse here. It's a great warning that you maybe are familiar with the saying from it, but I want you to think about it for a minute. First Timothy chapter six, verse 10 says, for the love of money, the love of money. Remember, worldliness is a desire. So if you could take worldliness, love, desire for money is a root at the core is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, have pierced themselves with many pangs. You, you have caused yourself all kinds of headaches because at the root heart love of money, you have it has led to all kinds of evils in your life. So if at heart level you have become worldly and valued money and not lost perspective, then it has all kinds of damaging effects it can have in your life. This is why this study, while first level you're like, man, quit talking about money. I don't want you, I don't want you in that area of my life. Uh, if we are going to genuinely be godly people that are free of destructive sin in our life, we've got to root out some areas that are terribly uh, destructive in our life. And so you pick up something like 1 Timothy 6, you go, you know what? The love of money in my heart actually is... Uh, where I think that I get this stuff and it makes me happy, it's actually causing all kinds of evils that are rooted in my heart. So this is why this subject of worldliness in possessions and money is such an important one because of the dangers involved in this uh, money, in, the, in how you might be worldly. Now, everything comes from the Lord. So just a couple of questions I would like to ask, and I'll, I'll just pause here for a second before I ask them. It's easy to become legalistic and create, like I mentioned a minute ago, hard and fast rules. I'm going to give X amount and then just, you don't even think about 
whether you're being godly with the rest of your money. And that's not how God intends for us to live. He, he intends for us to live in a way which we think, how can I be godly with what you have given me? How can I give this and use it for the glory of God? And sometimes that might be that you spend money uh, taking a vacation as a family and your family is bonding and it's a joy you have together. Sometimes that might mean that you invest in your marriage and you go out on a nice dinner and you eat a nice meal and you do it to celebrate the years of commitment and marriage that you've had. Sometimes it doesn't always mean that you're just giving it to the church and to the poor and pushing money away. However, the, the problem comes is when we stop asking, Lord, how am I honoring you with this money that you've given me? Am I generous with my money? Do I see myself giving to other people? Do, am, I, am I giving to the church? Am I giving to those who might be in need? Have I, have I budgeted enough margin that if I see a need with a person, I can meet that need? I can just step in and buy a lunch or buy a meal or help somebody with a bill, whatever it might be you've called me to do. Have I, have I laid enough margin into my budget where I can be a generous, godly person? And then I'll ask one last question and then we can move on. But I mentioned earlier worldly versus uh, godly people. And so the worldly people, they don't see anything wrong with being worldly. So if you were to take your budget and sit down and look at how you spend your money, and then you were to go to your neighbor's house, who's not a Christian, who doesn't live for the things of the Lord, and we were to look at their budget, what differences might I find? Would you actually see any differences in how you spend money? And again, I'm not saying you have to give everything you have and live in poverty, but what I am saying is, it ought to be a moment for you just to pray and say, Lord, how is it you want me to handle my money? And am I doing it in a godly manner? One last thing. Luke chapter 16, Jesus use, uses an example of a parable. And it's a strange parable. You should go read it. So just the first, I think, 10 or 11 verses of Luke 16. And he, he gives a parable of an example of, the, of an unrighteous steward. It's a, it's a guy who's shifty and he's shady and he's about to get fired and before he gets fired, he goes and forgives the debts of his boss. Uh, he goes around and says, well, you owe 1000 I'll make it 500 You owe $600, i will make it 300 So then when he gets fired and he goes out, he's got all kinds of friends because he forgave all their debts. So, so Jesus says if that guy who's worldly, not a Christian, the unrighteous steward, he says if that guy is able to know how to use money to win friends over, then how much more you as a Christian should know how to use money to win people that are lost to me? That's Jesus' point. He says the world can figure out how to leverage money for their own worldly desires. You need to figure out how to use the resources and the money God has given you for the kingdom of God. And so that should be at the heart of what we desire is not to be worldly with our money, but to be godly with our money. And we should ask the question, are we godly with the money we've been given? So here's a second uh, area we should look at is immorality. Immorality. Now, again, that feels gross. You know, it's like, but yeah, clearly I don't want to be immoral. But there seems to be some respectable versions of immorality. So he, he mentions a few in the book. I kind of bounce through them. 
uh, to talk about some of them, but I, I think the first one, in my opinion, might be the best. It's, he calls it vicarious immorality. It may be one of the hidden things that we do. And it's just a question you ought to pose to yourself, but, but do you find yourself living through the immorality of others? He's vicarious. That means you're living through someone else. It, it, it's the sin of not being willing personally to participate in that, but enjoying watching either one, the tabloids and the news of someone else participating in that sin, or I think it even goes down to uh, the movies we watch and the books we read and the sins that are in those uh, movies and books and things we watch and read. Now again, if you're going to only watch movies and books, read books that, are, that never have sin in them, then you might as well hang it up. However, as Christians, we need to be very careful by the level of which we enjoy the entertainment of sinful things. And I think that's his point, is that for us, when we watch and enjoy and look at immorality, immoral things, are, is, it, is it like we're putting a filter on our brain and we're saying, ah, see that, that, and that, and that? Or is it this subtle, quiet heart enjoyment of what would life be like if I were to do this or this or this? Is it a secret outlet for a sinful heart to indulge in that thinking? So again, this is so tough to do because I'm not here to try to tell you, well, if it's rated a certain rating, you shouldn't watch this movie, but if it's below this, you shouldn't. Now, now you as a Christian can come under conviction and say, I'm gonna draw some lines, but I, there's nothing standardized across the board for Christians other than just simply to say, you should be praying through this asking, how can I be moral in what I uh, see and watch and hear? So that, that's immorality there, vicarious immorality. He does talk about another area, and that's in the area of purity. I'll just kind of bat this around around, and I think it can go both ways, uh, male and female, and even now more and more the way uh, society is and things are continually getting twisted up. I don't know if I can, I can draw the lines as clear as maybe you could have at one time, but here's how I'll say it. We need to be careful not to tempt others, and we also need to be careful with our eyes. And so I'll just slice it a couple of different ways. The, the first level is how you dress ought to honor the Lord. There's a text for this, and you just, you just need to ask yourself, does, do, do I feel like that I'm honoring this verse in the way I dress? Uh, 1 Timothy 2.9 says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. So, again, just would you say that what you wear is respectable and modest, and you would feel like that before the Lord, that if, if the Lord were to come and examine how you are dressing, that he would feel like you are fulfilling that verse in your life. There's a second uh, twist to it, and that's just the same one as like for a man with this particular temptation is to guard the eyes. You simply just say, what are you looking at? What are you thinking on? And uh, how are you being pure in that area of immorality? It might only be a small thing. It might only be a second look, but that second look is sinful. And so are you being worldly or are you being godly in these areas? Now I'll give you the third, third area he talks about in the book 
and it's one that it's so subtle and so hard to wrestle through, but it's one we as Christians need to be careful about, and that's idolatry. Idolatry. Now, again, idolatry seems obvious, and some people would even put this at the root core of all sin, right? Is that we have replaced God with idols. And I can, I can see how that's a core part of all sin that we do. Uh, but he talks about a few subtle ways and subtle things we, had, we, uh, we create as idols. The first one is our career or our jobs. And meaning that it's easy to get driven for success and to be pressing towards more and working. You can be a workaholic, you can give your life over to it. And you replace, you can't go to, you can't go to church, you can't read your Bible, you can't be around Christians because work, 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 work. You have to advance, you have to get further, you have to do better. And your life is now not spent in godly things, it's spent in work. This is easy to do. And at some level, you want to succeed. You want to be a hard worker. You want to. The Bible calls you to work hard unto the Lord. So, so not what I'm not saying here is not to work hard. What we are saying is that you should work for the Lord. So let me give you a verse that I think will be helpful. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So, so whether we are at home or away, and then here's just a phrase you ought to just wake up with in your mind. We make it our aim to please Him. Your goal is to please the Lord. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. Your goal is to please God himself. And so if you wake up every day and you have the orbit that you're circling is God himself, then your heart is not going to be drawn over to put your life orbiting around work and success. Now, sometimes they go together. Sometimes hard work, diligence, and uh, putting your time in at work actually becomes pleasing to the Lord. They go together. So, so it's a bit deceptive because there's a lot of times I, my, I would pray that you are a hard worker. I pray that, that when people look at you and see that you're a Christian and see your work ethic, that they go, man, I respect both of those. So you want to be a hard worker. You want to do well at your job. The problem comes is that when all of a sudden your orbit of hard work comes into conflict with your orbit of God and his your service to him which one do you choose is it and and this comes in conflict sometimes is with your family uh, but I think a lot of times just simply with church and your personal walk with the Lord do you work so many hours to the neglect of other godly responsibilities in your life do, do you need to try to reposition your life or your job to serve him more. And some of you, he mentions this in the book, I thought it was a great piece of advice. You may work in a real high pressure job where there's a lot of hours and work and pressure. You need to find a godly uh, mentor or somebody you know in the field you work in that can help you navigate some of the decisions you have to make uh, about work and the Lord. So all that just to say, I, I don't know your job, you know your job and you know your life and I can't solve it all for you. The question you just have to ask when you wake up every day and you go to work, is it your aim to please Him? Now, i just mention a few more. A few more subtle idols. One that is not in the book, but I think it's one that we deal with more now than ever before is some form of an electronic. It could be your phone. It could be a computer. It could be Facebook. It could be Netflix binge watching. It could be any number of things that can just dominate your life. 
And you need to be very careful about how those things, they're designed to addict you to those devices. I mean, they, you know, they, it's not a mistake that as soon as you're done watching a show, that thing starts spinning again to go in three, two, one, the next one starts up, right? That's not a mistake. That's designed so that you won't be there for five minutes, you'll be there for five hours. And so it's built so that you'll be into that device. So one of the areas we have to watch being worldly, and this is where we can easily spend two hours on a device and zero minutes reading our Bible. Or you might spend two or three hours watching TV on Sunday now, and because you're at home in the pandemic, you're sitting at the house, you, you I don't even know if I have enough time to watch the service and to worship at my house. I, I know I don't feel comfortable going to church, but I can watch TV for hours a week. Or maybe now you say, um, I'm too busy uh, with my life, but I don't have enough time to go to church. Whatever it might be, you have to ask yourself the question, are these devices dominating my life? Last couple of here. Uh, I think sports can play a role in our life. Uh, it can either be youth sports. I've seen that as serving as a student pastor for years. I saw that particular application. And it can be just watching sports can be so emotional for us, we kind of build our lives around whatever that sporting event can be. It could be, it could be any number of things that can take a, a worldly, idolatrous place in our heart uh, in regards to our time and our life. So, so we need to be able to ask ourselves, what areas are we living in a worldly manner? Where are we putting our emphasis on the now and the here and not looking at the eternal and what the long-term goals are. It's, a such, it's such a hard question you have to ask. But this is why as Christians we can't just live with simple legalistic answers that just say, here's the line to draw. We need to be people, people that are wrestling with our godliness, asking these questions of how we can pursue Christ. I'll give you just four quick things at the end here just to conclude the, the whole study through the book about how I think you can walk out of this. The first one is fix your eyes on Christ. B because when you try to walk away from any of these sins, just turning from them are, is not enough. Just saying, I'm not going to be worldly. You're going to have to turn and put your eyes on Christ and He's going to have to be worth more than whatever joy you had in the world. His, uh, the, the, the joy you get out of following Him will draw your hearts out. That's why you hear Paul say in Philippians 3.8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So the only reason this worldly stuff is a loss is because he knows Christ. Christ is just better. And so as you try to walk away from any of these sins, make sure you don't just say, I don't want to be worldly. You need to say, I want to be Christ-like. And you turn your heart that way, and all this other stuff will just fade away. The second thing I would say to do, now that you turn your heart to Christ, you need to be willing to face your sin and say, I know that I sin. It's, it's a hard thing for us to do. And even if we've professed it as a Christian in a general way, it's still, uh, it's hard for our pride to come down and say, you know what, I know that I made a mistake. And uh, for a lot of us, we need to sometimes ask others, and in the book, at the very end, I think he, he makes a suggestion, which 
Uh, it's a challenging one, but he has the whole list of all the sins, and he has like a four-part rating system, and he says, give this to somebody in your life and ask them to rate you on each of these sins. I think it's a great, it's a great idea, maybe a little painful, but it, it gives you a pretty good self-awareness of where you're, uh, where you're at with each of those struggles in your life. So after you've turned to Christ, you have faced your sin, you should now approach God with boldness. You, you shouldn't be afraid of living out your life uh, and approaching God, even though you say, I know I have all this sin. You have to understand the grace of Christ is greater. So don't let the fact that you see these struggles in your life push you away from Christ. In fact, those struggles are what bring Christ to run to you. That's what he came to do to save me and you. Final thing I'll say is that after we've identified our sin, run to Christ, I pray that you experience victory over your sin. You no longer have to live in the terrible uh, stench and destructive nature of sin in your life. That you have the joy of being a thankful, joyful, humble, a godly and not worldly person, that the judgmentalism, the bitterness, the anger that's in your heart, uh, the, you know, the ungodliness that you might have, uh, all these lists, the worry, the anxiety, the discontentment, all these things that you struggle with, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will have victory over these sins and through that experience the joy of of Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, how you have saved us to become more like Christ. And Lord, we just pray today that you would make us godly people and not worldly people, that we would not, we would not be ungodly, but we would live out lives that are focused on bringing glory to you and to you alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.